1: Join us to share their secrets to help you achieve your personal and professional goals. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my truly incredible and honestly fascinating guests, we bring you inspiring and actionable insights to take your life and business to the next level. Ranked in the top 2% globally, this podcast is a must-listen, so let's dive in. And by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, but October, and we are in October right now, is National Energy Awareness Month, and I am delighted to welcome to the show Richard McPherson. He is a pioneering nuclear energy, and molten salt expert, and he's going to talk to us all about that. Now, Richard is a trailblazer in nuclear energy, and he embarked on his journey during Admiral Rickover's famed nuclear power school in 1964, and after a distinguished 20-year Navy career, he assumed a pivotal role as the United States representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency. And this position led him to join a specialized Six Nation team investigating nuclear fuel cycle facilities, the environment, and public opinion in the aftermath of the Chernobyl incident. We all remember that. And today, Richard's focus is on shaping public opinion and promoting the global deployment industry of the molten salt nuclear battery. I don't even know what that is. So I'm fascinated to hear his story. His goal is to fulfill President Eisenhower's vision of offering American nuclear energy to the world for the purpose of peace, prosperity, and security. And I have to tell you, our pre-interview, and I always do a pre-interview, was so fascinating that I really wish that we had been able to record that and turn it into at least part of this show he has some great stories and historical facts to share and yes i will be asking about admiral rickover as well as the hunt for rat october one of my favorite movies good morning richard and welcome to your partner in success radio it's good to have you here
0: good morning denise it's a pleasure to be with you i um it's an interesting story. My grew up with my father, who was a naval aviator, Navy pilot, and um, born in California, but he got transferred to Hawaii when I was about 10 years old. So he had three tours back to back in Hawaii. So I basically grew up in Hawaii. <clears throat> and one of the things that I didn't realize for many years is because of a question I asked him in 1957. I became a student of energy. The question was, I said, where do your airplanes get their gas from? At the time he was stationed in Barber's Point Naval Air Air Station. He said, well, from a truck. I said, well, where do the trucks get their gas from? He said, well, from a tank on the base. I said, well, where does that tank get its gas from? He said, from a pipeline that comes from Honolulu Harbor or Pearl Harbor. And I said, well, where does that pipeline come from? He said, well, tanks. I said, well, where do those tanks get their gas? He said, so then he drew me a one-line diagram from Los Angeles, the refineries in Los Angeles, the refineries in San Francisco, by Ocean Tanker over to Hawaii. So now fast forward 10 years later, 1967, I have now – gone through Admiral Rickover's Navy nuclear power school and I'm on my first fleet ballistic missile submarine submerged somewhere in the world on my first fleet ballistic missile deterrent patrol and I'm qualifying as a nuclear power plant operator. So by myself I'm sitting there and I was reflecting back over my lifetime at that time pretty short and it dawned on me but because of the question I asked my dad in 1957 I had become a student of energy. Well, here we are today, many years later, and I realize I'm still a student of energy. Now, what helped that a lot was the, all the different jobs that I had in the Navy, and then after I got out of the Navy, because they were all associated one way or another with energy, and a lot of it was nuclear energy. As a, for instance, I was happily living in Hong Kong and I get a call, and the person on the other end of the phone says, if we ask you, would you represent the United States at the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, Austria? I looked at the phone, and I said, who is this, really?
1: Yeah, really, I would, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so he told me, and he said, um, we, uh, we'll send you a, a round-trip uh, open uh, business class ticket to fly back to Washington, D.C. for an interview. So I thought, well, I'll test them, and I'll say yes. So in my mind was, well, it'll take him about 10 days to get permission to actually issue me this ticket. It'll take another week, week and a half, two weeks for it to get mailed over here. And uh, I'll go back there and have dinner with some friends at uh, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, where they've got uh, far better steaks than I get in Hong Kong and much cheaper. And they got good wine, and they got good Jack Daniels, and it's cheaper so uh, next morning there's a knock on the door open the door here's a man dressed in a suit looks at me and says uh Mr. McPherson well I'm looking for my father at that point and he says Richard I said yes he said I have an envelope for you to sign for I didn't relate his visit with the telephone conversation the day before he was from the embassy he had this manila envelope for me to sign for and I thought well, they finally found me. I'm going to jail. Oh, so,
1: I want to know where that process came from. Where that so, came from.
0: So I thought, well, I better get a cup of coffee. So I got a cup of coffee and I opened the envelope and here's all this paperwork. And sure enough, here's this round trip open business class ticket to go back to Washington, D.C. And along with a bunch of paperwork, it says, you know, in one of these three hotels, just call them and check in. So I did it, and um, went through this interview, and um, they told me what it was all about and why, and I said yes. So I went back to Hong Kong and basically gave my business away to the three guys that were working with me, and uh, I wound up going to the International Atomic Energy Agency as a United States representative, as you previously said, to a special six nation group that was formed because of the Chernobyl, uh, accident. And our, our study was supposed to be nuclear fuel cycle facilities. As you said, the environment and public opinion. And we did that for four years. I'm the only American ever to do it. Every American ever have the luxury to do it. And of course being there, it gave me standing, that I could take a look at everything we had. And so what it really became, it became another part of my education about energy. That's what it really became. And I took advantage of it. So by the time I got done with the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, the plan had been for me to come back to the Department of Energy and work for the Secretary of Energy and uh, basically work with all the national laboratories. However, there was a change in the administrations and the Clinton administration came in and um, there was no longer any interest in me or much about nuclear energy. So I've wandered through the nuclear and energy industry for quite a number of years and uh, decided in 2015 to come to Idaho to retire and learn how to fish. Didn't tell anybody we were moving here I came here in November of 2015. In February of 2015, I get a phone call from a person up at the Idaho National Laboratory who said, "So and so in Washington D.C. gave me your number." I never said you moved to Idaho. Where are you? I said, "Well, I'm down here by Boise." He said, "Come up for a cup of coffee." I said, "Well, it's a five-hour drive." He said, "Well, coming from Orange County, California." He said, you're used to that, besides up here, traffic moves. So I went up there, and I've been up there many times since then. So by the summer of 2016, I was back in nuclear, and people knew I was back in nuclear, and I was receiving a lot of phone calls. So along comes early 2018. I get a call from a Dr. Richard Christensen, who was head of nuclear, uh, graduate-level nuclear engineering, at the university of idaho he said i want to introduce you to one of your navy friends so he introduced me to dr paul murata and dr paul murata had gone to work as a civilian for um naval reactors which admiral Rickover got started um, in 1983 the same year i retired from the navy but paul was a designer paul designs nuclear power plants designed them for submarines and aircraft carriers for the navy So Paul thinks he's going to meet just another naval officer who'd been in nuclear power and he'd met a lot of those. So I listened and Paul said, designed a reactor that has no pumps and no valves and it's natural circulation. Well, Paul didn't know it at the time, but I was hooked because what I had just heard was what we were all talking about forever Here is the ideal power source we need to do everything in the world to give people the energy that they need to make a living, to live, make sure that we have food for people, make sure we have clean water for people. So in early 2018, I was hooked. So fast forward to today. My responsibility today is simple. I am the uh, chief uh, executive officer of Idaho Energy Incorporated. The molten salt nuclear battery is gonna be manufactured here in Idaho, in Blackfoot, Idaho, by a company by the name of Premier Technology. And um, they, um, they and myself have spent a lot of time together in the last four years. Uh, my job is to oversee the manufacturing testing and the deployment and we're first starting with the united states but it's also fulfilling one of my lifelong dreams and that is to find solutions under the nexus of agriculture water and energy the molten salt nuclear battery is the ideal power source for the world it will change the world in the case of water it's simply a management issue and it People can't get their act together and manage the water we have in the world. We have plenty of water. It's just not in the right places at the right time. And in the case of agriculture, it's soils. And I ran into a person up here by the name of George Gershma, And George has been, he always wanted to go back to his roots. He grew up on a farm. Had a very successful company nationwide. Uh, employees in every state. And he started working on soils in 2016 when I met him. So now uh, George is involved with us with the molten salt nuclear battery. I'm involved with him in soils um, so that we can get rid of all of the runoff that comes from agriculture that contaminates our water, from fertilizer, insecticides, and pesticides. Right. Right. So there's where I am today.
1: Well, going... And this is fascinating. I'm sitting here with my mouth kind of hanging open going, oh my goodness. And I knew a lot of this already about you, but I keep going back to Admiral Rickover. You started over there essentially. Well, you started with your dad, but you started over there and Admiral Rickover was known for his uncompromising standards. I did my homework and rigorous rigorous selection process for personnel in the nuclear Navy. And it sounds to me like, you have uncompromising standards as well. You're not going to just give up and walk off because something isn't working out your way and that you have big thoughts, hopes, and dreams for America and the rest of the world. To
0: me, it's simple. Uh, Energy is the world. Energy is the lifeblood of the world. Um, The United States has been a leader in energy technology uh, since the 1800s. Uh, we should have shifted uh, to far more nuclear uh, than we have. It was, it was stopped simply by the Soviet Union after President Eisenhower gave his speech on December the 8th, 1953 at the United Nations, where he offered United States Navy, or excuse me, United States uh, nuclear technology to the world for peace and prosperity. And they knew that they couldn't have that. They couldn't allow that to happen because they saw what we did and what Americans did in World War II and World War One, where the world was in crisis. America geared up and went out and helped the world win uh, back the world from bad people in World War I and World War Two, And with having nuclear power being such a good power source with such a high power density, There's no way the Soviets could allow the United States to have commercial nuclear power. So they immediately started putting money and resources in here to subvert everything to do with commercial nuclear power. And they've been very successful at it. Um, But, you know, the Americans have a way of rising above all of that at some point. Takes them a long time. We all get frustrated. We'd like something to change right now. But what we're seeing finally is that switchover from against nuclear power to actually for nuclear power. And interestingly enough, it's driven by people's concern over climate change. People have been, starting 30, 40 years ago, a lot of it started with Al Gore, people like him, where they made a crisis out of climate change. Well, climate change is normal.
1: Uh, no. I know. Trust me, I, I don't believe in climate change. I believe in seasons, and you know, yes, things change. They always change. Well, if I'm you not go going to, to go down that road, but I, I agree with you.
0: Well, if you go to if you go to the real scientists that study the relationship between the moon, the Earth, and the Sun, and they also study the core samples from deep down in the Earth, they know that we've had much high periods in in the Earth's history of much higher CO2. Mm -hmm. They know that. Those are real scientists. The scientists that we hear about in the news media are the scientists who make this a crisis and keep it a crisis because what they're looking for is more money. They're always looking for more money from the government or, unfortunately, some of these people who mean to do well with their money but they give it to the wrong scientists and but real scientists real scientists and real engineers are, are very clear about studying what has affected our earth over the years and we know what it is and climate change is normal just like you said the seasons are normal
1: they really are and look i live in the deep south it's so we really don't have a seasons so we have two seasons hot and hotter in hell and that's it and 6 months of that is you know hurricane season but we have we're, right now we're you know october november december we're in fall and pretty soon we'll be in winter i don't understand what the ruckus is all about i've never understood it but- that's neither here nor there. So we're talking, I said, don't get me started. But we're talking about nuclear energy. And then, and I don't watch the news. You know, it's legacy news. A lot of it's just follow the money. Yeah, you know, this really, that's all you have to do. But, you know, this whole stop oil thing, it's like, really? Just please stop, you know, stop trying to get run over or hurt. Well, there are so many ways that we have energy. You're not helping
0: Let's talk about that for a moment. You brought up uh, all this stuff that we're hearing about, uh, basically oil, fossil fuels. Yeah. So the reason that we have the world that we have today, which is a pretty good world to live in for most people, for for the majority of the people in the planet. There's about close to a billion people that need a lot of help. But for the majority of us, we live a pretty good life. And it's because of fossil fuels. It's because of oil, it's because of natural gas, it's because of coal. Of course well, Today, 84% of the world runs on those fossil fuels. We hear All we hear about is solar and wind or some sort of magic. But they only give us 3% of our energy in the world today. Fossil energy is here to stay. It is not going to go away. However, let me qualify that. Coal, natural gas, and oil are finite resources in the Earth's crust. And we should not be burning them the way we do. They are far too valuable to keep burning them the way we do. Now, to the credit of the oil and natural gas people, and the chemists that work with them, and the material scientists that work with them, they have developed thousands of uses for oil and natural gas. Not so, not for coal yet. Coal is one of the unrecognized great resources in the world that we still have a lot of work to do to be able to take full value of the coal. And we're going to do that. And one of the things that will help to do that is by us having no uh, more nuclear power, such as the molten salt nuclear battery, because we'll be able to put in coal conversion plants everywhere in the world to take the full value out of that coal and the chemicals that are in there, just as though we're doing today with natural gas and oil.
1: See, that's where I wanted to go. And you got there before I could ask you or even shape a question, because I know, I mean, listen, I'm in Southwest Louisiana. We produce oil here. We've. If I know when a hurricane's coming because, you know, all of a sudden I'll see helicopters buzzing across the top of my house. They're heading out to the Gulf which is about 15 miles away as a crow flies, and they're picking up their people off of those rigs. So I don't really pay attention to the news. I watch what the helicopters are doing. That's how I know what's going on out there. But, you know, we're not going to be able to get, or I don't think we need to get rid of stop oil. You know, stop oil. Stop oil to me is just ridiculous, but we need that. But I wanted to know from you, how does this all tie into... The molten salt nuclear battery, because I'm not quite sure where we're going from one to the other, how they help each other. What's that pathway look like? Well,
0: right now we use a lot of uh, of our fossil fuels, natural gas and oil. Uh, we consume a lot of it just to get the gas and oil, natural gas and oil that we use. So that oh. means that we we have we have large pumps that pump it around, we have uh, refineries that refine it. Well, those pumps and those refineries um, all consume natural gas and oil and some even some coal uh, and a lot of electricity. And all of that can be produced by nuclear power. That will significantly reduce the amount of carbon that the fossil fuel industry puts out significantly reduce it. Uh, So we're going to see a transition in this country from the use of oil and natural gas and coal to produce electricity, to give us more uses from oil, gas, and coal, to their power source is gonna be nuclear. That That will make those processes much more efficient. There will be much less of a carbon load on our atmosphere and that is starting to take place now. We're starting to see it now. I've been getting phone calls about this now for uh, about two years. And uh, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but let me talk to you, let me talk to you about uh, th- three things that you, you want to consider when we're looking at what kind of power source are we going to use. There's something called energy density. There's something called the capacity factor. And there's something that we look at in acres per megawatt of electricity produced. Energy density is simply, how much energy density is there in particular uh, natural energy sources, such as coal, natural gas, oil, nuclear, et cetera? Well, the People generally use something called megajoules per kilogram.
1: Like megawatt so, or something like that? Yeah, I won't. I don't won't, know
0: I, what I would, a megawatt is. Yeah, I don't want to. There's megajoules per kilogram, and I'm not going to get into that, but okay. let me give you a number. So for coal, it's 24. For natural gas, it's 55. For oil, it's 44. For nuclear, it's 3,900,000. Oh, so that'll give you an idea of how much more energy density we get out of the ground from a little bit of uranium compared to what we get from coal, natural gas and oil. And to repeat those numbers is coal, we get 24, natural gas 55, oil 44, but nuclear 3,900,000 megajoules per kilogram.
1: So there's really no that. argument to be had then.
0: No, so then we get the capacity factor. And of course, all this has to do and it has to do with the Earth's finite resources. They are finite, and we need to make better use of them. So let's get the capacity factor. that has to do with generating electricity. And capacity factor simply means if we were going to run something with a hundred percent capacity factor, It means it runs 24-7, 365 days a year. Well, the capacity factor for coal is 49%. Natural gas, 54%. Solar is 24%, and wind is 34%. But for nuclear, it's 93%.
1: Again, no argument to be had. No argument
0: there. So in order to have the same amount of power from nuclear from solar... We've got to increase our wind by 377%. Or we've got to increase our wind by 268% or coal by 189%. There is no argument. Then we start looking at, okay, how many acres do I have to devote of land? Do I have to devote to get a megawatt of electricity? Well, for coal, I've got to have over 12 acres. For natural gas, I've got to have over 12 acres. Everybody loves hydropower. For hydropower, I've got to devote 315 acres of land. For solar, I've got to have 43 acres. For wind, I've got to have 71 acres. But for nuclear, it's less than one acre per megawatt. Again, you take the three primary indicators that you should take into account when you're selecting an energy source, and nuclear wins hands down in all three.
1: Well, and the thing with, you know, these big wind farms that you see, and I don't even know if this is true. Again, I really try to stay away from legacy media, but I'm seeing more and more reports where these wind farms, the blades are breaking. They can't be broken down. They're kind of a mess from what I can tell.
0: Well, we don't have any oh, way yeah. to dispose of the blades yet. We don't have any way to dispose of, uh, solar um, and and also batteries. So and the only reason that we have wind and solar is because politicians found out that they can give taxpayers money to wind and solar developers, and wind and solar developers kick back money to politicians to get reelected.
1: Oh, I always say, whatever it is, follow the money. Always, one hundred percent. Follow the money. the
0: money. You're absolutely right. I and so, so, so and and the other thing too is. One of the things that's not being talked about with solar and wind is the ecological damage that's being done. Now, humans, we cover over parking lots and we cover over pads to build houses and, and, uh, and uh, structures to live in, to work in, uh, to drive on streets and roads. Uh, we don't need to be doing that for our power plants. And yet we're doing the same thing with solar and wind with, with, Thousands and thousands and thousands of acres that took millions of years of evolution to have the flora and fauna and what's in the soil under them. When you cover them over with solar and wind, the ecological damage that's being done is something that's not being talked about. It's not being heard by the few people that are telling us, wait a minute, why are we unnecessarily destroying all this acreage that we need to be part of our ecosystem to live. And we need every single acre out there that we can, whether it's called a green area, whether it's for agriculture or whatever, because humans are going to occupy more and more land. And the world population is increasing, which means humans are occupying more and more land, which means we better take care of the rest of the land. And we're not taking care of the rest of the land like we should when we're putting solar and wind on it.
1: It breaks my heart when I see old growth forests cut down. When I see a single oak tree cut down, you're going to think I'm nuts. But, you know, I live in what used to, or I live on what used to be an old plantation. I'm in southwest Louisiana. And when I bought my house 2005, it was right after her, right between Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. And... <laughs> there was fields behind me. Now there are homes back there, but that took a while. But there were fields behind me. And all of a sudden they started cutting down the fields. You know, the the farms got sold. But they left a few oak trees. And I'm not joking about this. It still makes my heart hurt. They left a few oak trees. I thought, oh, good. Well, you know, they're going to leave those alone. And one morning I was in here in my office. I was building a website. I'll never forget it. And I heard literally what I thought was screaming They had a big piece of equipment. I'm guessing it's a crane. And they plucked this giant oak tree out of the ground. And it screamed. I'm not joking. It made the most god-awful sound. I'll never forget it.
0: Well, you know, we've had these tree tree, uh, replanting programs in the United States for years. And I remember back in the 1970s when I first started hearing these supposed environmentalists tell us that we're cutting down all the trees and we're uh, wiping out all the forests. Well, so I started looking into that. I'm inquisitive by nature. And I found out that we're actually planting more board feet and growing more board feet than we harvest. And as Americans, we continue to do that. And yet you look around the world at where they don't have an energy source like the molten salt nuclear battery. Specifically, you look around the equator between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. If you look around the equator, that's where about 45% of the world population live. They've cut down all the trees. They needed energy. So they cut down the trees and burned the trees. So they don't have any source of energy anymore they're not making, the trees aren't taking in the CO2 and putting out the oxygen like they were before. So um, um, uh, we need to help them. Well, guess what? When I heard Dr. Paul Murata tell me about the molten salt nuclear battery, my mind immediately went to, we can help 45% of the world's population around the equator by giving them the molten salt nuclear battery so they can actually have uh, fresh water, they can either take contaminated water and distill it, uh, powered by the molten salt nuclear battery. They, they can take seawater and distill it. They can take sea, they can. They can pump, pump that water around where the people need it for both agriculture and to have drinking water. So we don't have people dying of these horrible diseases they get from drinking contaminated water.
1: All right. Well, listen, and I've been wanting to ask this, but you're so fascinating. I didn't want to interrupt. More than I have done so already, but in simple terms, how does the molten salt nuclear battery work? How does it operate? Is this something that is you know, it's a big, big unit that the government has to run? Are we eventually going to have one in our homes? What do you see for this?
0: Well, Doctor Marada, he knew coming from designing and building reactors for the navy, or designing them for the navy, he knew that our military bases were not, did not get protected power. Um, as we mostly, starting in World War II, we built our military bases. As they were designed and constructed, they simply called a local utility and said, would you ring, uh, bring wires into our base and provide us with electricity? Well, that's what the situation we have today. And he knew that that was, made our bases vulnerable without having protected power. So he designed the molten salt nuclear battery first to go on our military bases and provide them protected power, that, which they need to operate, which they need for continuity of services. So to give you an idea how big one is and put it in reference to the number of homes that it could serve, a 10 megawatt molten salt nuclear battery is about 1.5 meters in diameter. meters in diameter is uh, less than 4 feet in diameter, or about about 4 feet, less than 5 feet in diameter, let's say. So it's 5 feet in diameter, and it's about 5 meters tall. So it's about 5 feet wide in diameter, and it's about 20 feet tall. That 10 megawatts, as they're currently designed to last 10 years, would provide 4,900 average American homes electricity for 10 years.
1: Is there any possibility that our local utility companies are going to go, yeah, bring one, we can use that?
0: Um, we've had some utilities, a couple of utilities just recently contact us.
1: Oh, good. Okay. They're
0: realizing They're realizing that the day and age of these large uh, power plants is over. Uh, there's pressure on fossils, so we're Energy, so we're shutting down coal plants. Uh, uh, two new nuclear plants just went in operation, or going in operation, uh, on the southeast United States, and their their their, their cost is prohibitive.
1: I would imagine
0: what's um, called light water reactors. Um, they're made by Westinghouse, and those large reactors they they serve their purpose, but we can't afford them anymore. We can't afford the North American grid as we have it anymore. And we knew that right after 9-11. We're too vulnerable for it to be interrupted. So what we need is thousands of molten salt nuclear batteries around all these cities and towns, military bases, airports and ports. So they have their own secure power source right there.
1: Hospitals.
0: Hospitals, universities, Mm -hmm. um, processing facilities where you uh, you might have mining operations, you might have food processing, you might have fish processing, you might have uh, wood. Any processing facility there is, the molten salt nuclear battery is the ideal power source to go power.
1: Well, let's – and I'm thinking about my utility bill right now, every <laughs> you know, climbing up inch by inch, penny by penny – and a lot of people are saying, I can't afford to have my heater on this winter. I can tell you right now, I'm not going to be able to afford it, which is frightening. But my, I guess my question is, how long do you think that there will be, we can do away with a lot of the infrastructure that we have now and bring in something that is far more workable and safe? I mean, I know this is a long long process but will we be seeing any of this anytime soon
0: well the yeah. only thing the only holdup we have is the government itself with all its rules and regulations yeah yep. and the they have made they have systematically made since uh since uh the speech that president eisenhower gave they have systematically made nuclear more and more expensive and burdensome to put online. So that's the holdup. The government and and its unnecessary rules and regulations. We've been demonstrating safe nuclear power now since the 1940s. So the United States is by far demonstrated uh, above any other country that we are the ones that know how to design, build, and operate safely nuclear power plants. So the reality is, um, we could be building these and starting to distribute them in a, in a year. Now.
1: Now when you say distribute, Richard, um, are we talking about worldwide or just the United States?
0: Well, it depends on the capacity. Right now we have a capacity, we have a fixed capacity of manufacturing of so many per month. As we start to uh, provide them to military bases or cities or wherever they're going to go, then we'll increase that capacity. Uh, We're already looking at the use of uh, robotics and artificial intelligence uh, to put in uh, a robotic manufacturing facility to manufacture them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will be able to provide as many as we need and place them where we need them. And then people always say, well, uh, uh, what about uh, the waste? Well, we don't have much waste. Everything has waste. But in our particular case, what we've done is we've looked at the entire cycle, uh, life cycle of, of one of these molten salt nuclear batteries. And we're going to be involved from the fuel all the way to when it comes back to recycle it, to pull out the fuel and to recycle the fuel and use it over again.
1: I was going to ask you about that because I'm assuming, you know, given how long you guys have worked on this and how very careful you are with, with your thinking that you're looking at everything, you know, every, can it be recycled? How do we dispose of it? You know, what, what's going to happen with this? You can't so many new things pop up. Oh, you know, we've got these wind farms. Oh, we've got this, we've got that. Well, great. You know, charging stations for cars in the middle of a, farm i mean come on nobody thought this out i get so irritated by a lot of what i see it's just who thought this out my second thought is follow the money never mind denise you've already answered your own question but <laughs> you know, yeah i'm i was born a cynic i will die a cynic but explain it to us you know tell us what's really going to happen don't keep talking well, to us let's, let's but talk it looks like you're, you're working on that
0: yeah, let's talk about electric vehicles for a moment. When I lived down in Southern California, one of my neighbors worked for Southern California Edison. And that was when electric vehicles were first starting to come out. And when they were talking, he says, you see that transformer in that pole over there? I said, yes. He said, if we have somebody that buys an electric vehicle in our in our tract and they charge it from their house, that... Transformer is capable of also charging that vehicle. But he said, one of the things that nobody wants to talk about, including the utility that I work for, and certainly not the state of California, is if somebody decides in our track to buy a second electric vehicle mm-hmm. and they want to charge it, that transformer has to be replaced. Well, the cost oh, of that the transformer is going to be on you and I. As we as the rate payers are going to have to pay it. So it's a hidden cost that nobody realizes with these electric vehicles. The other thing is, if you look around uh, the country at a bunch of these electrical charging stations for electric vehicles, hidden behind the scenes in some of them is a diesel generator generating electricity from a diesel engine to be able to uh, power the electric vehicle.
1: Yeah, they're not magic. I don't know why people don't get this. It's not magic. They don't just pop up and you plug in, wait an hour, which I will not do, Yeah, and just say, oh, well, look, it's magic. Now I can go. Are you crazy? It's got to come from somewhere. We
0: don't have the power. The utilities are saying we don't have the power. California is the leader at pushing electric vehicles, and California over the last couple of years several times has told people Please turn off your air conditioners and mm-hmm. please don't charge your electric vehicles because we don't have the electrical capacity.
1: Well, politicians, got to love them. Can't shoot them, got to love them. Um, so what happens? I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated with the process here. So because you have these batteries, that doesn't mean that they're not powered and they're not created by what we already have in the earth, coal, you know, electricity, which is water. I mean, they're coming from somewhere. So let's explain well,
0: that. I'm glad you asked that question because the manufacturer that we have, were working with has uh, has plenty of land and they're going to expand their manufacturing. So we have been talking about, uh, he right now they buy their electricity from the grid like everybody else. So we've been talking and we decided a long time ago, well, At some point in time, we will build one of the molten salt nuclear batteries and we will power the facility that actually does the manufacturing of the molten salt nuclear batteries with a molten salt nuclear battery.
1: How will that work? What's the process?
0: Well, it's just like we install one on a military base or in any city. Um, We'll just simply build one of them uh, with its uh, electric generator associated with it. And instead of taking power, for, buying power from the grid, we'll shift over to getting power from the molten salt nuclear power generator. It's As simple as that.
1: But that just makes too much sense. Obviously, people are not going to like this. And yes, I'm being sardonic.
0: But... Well, some people, some people love it. Uh, the utilities are in, the utilities. The utilities are in the energy business, and they're going to stay in the energy business. They just need to change. They're very resistant to change, but I don't blame them because I've watched over my lifetime what's happened with the utilities. When I started back in the 60s, the utilities were headed up by people who actually knew how to generate electricity. Today, that's changed. And now they're lawyers and bankers and uh, accountants. But the change was necessary for them to survive because it was changes in public policy that forced them from being people that produced energy efficiently to people who adhered to government regulations. It's as simple as that. People like to beat up the utilities. Me too. But I understand what's happened. And it is simply changes in public policy, some by the Congress and others by organizations like the, um, EPA. The EPA makes a bunch of laws. They shouldn't be making laws, but they essentially make laws that increase the cost of everything to Americans. And uh, if the fault lies with the Congress, the Congress won't go back and do something about the EPA.
1: Yeah, we've got a lot of that kind of stuff going on. It just gets bigger and bigger and more convoluted. Nobody knows who to talk to, who to, you know, it's a mess. It's well, it's not anybody. just here; it's worldwide. It you, is. Well, you can't. Covered by in... people who should not be in government.
0: Well, you you were you were you're uh, you may be old enough to recall when you called a government phone number, somebody answered the phone not no. today.
1: I didn't. I didn't. You could call them. I mean, I thought we were just stuck with them.
0: Yeah. Well. Yeah, what happens today is is that uh, you call a government number and you get a computer and said, we'll call you right back, and they never do.
1: <laughs> that sounds about right. So over the last, I'm going to say, 70 years or so, what lessons have we gleaned about the safe, safety of nuclear energy? Because honestly, I never hear anything about nuclear problems. I hear about, you know... Stopping oil. I hear about prices going up. You hear a lot of negative stuff, but I don't hear anything negative about nuclear energy.
0: Well, the safety is the, the safety in, in, in nuclear power in the world uh, and especially in the United States is really uh, to the thanks of Admiral Hyman G. Rickover and what he got started back in the 1940s. Um, It was not only the insistence upon the quality of what are we going to use to build a a reactor, but also the quality of the people. And he's not given enough credit for the quality of the people and the quality of the uh, educational system that he put in place. Uh, It took me a while to understand what I had been through uh, when I went through Navy nuclear power school. But what he did was he created a, a school. It's in two parts. One is in the classroom. And the other one is you go to an act, uh, a prototype of a, of a nuclear power plant that actually operates. And the first half, you get all the bookwork, which is the equivalent at the time I went through of about five years of engineering school in six months. And then you go immediately to an actual operating nuclear power plant, and you qualify uh, uh, on every workstation that there is and learn how to operate it. And nobody has ever, in my opinion, given him credit nor taken advantage of what he put together. We don't need to have people in school for four years or eight years or whatever they are in so many fields. We need to duplicate in our educational system, what Admiral Rickover put together starting back in the late 1940s.
1: Is that program it's, still available?
0: It's still available. The, oh. uh, the, the schools uh, have consolidated. Uh, now they're all down in Georgia. Uh, but uh, when I went through, there were two uh, basic schools, the six-month school. One was in Bainbridge, Maryland. The other one was in Vallejo, California. And uh, I remember when I, first day I walked into Nuclear Power School at at Mare Naval Shipyard in Vallejo, California. There's a sign above the door where every student walks in, and the sign says, "said is on." On the sign is something like this: "In this school, even the smartest must work as hard as those who struggle to pass." H. G. Rickover. So I thought, well, i don't, I'd heard about it. As a matter of fact, my father, when I came back from being recruited to go in the Navy and submarines and nuclear power at dinner that night. My mom said, well, what'd you do today? I said, well, I joined the Navy going nuclear power in submarines. and submarines. My dad almost under his breath said that's Admiral Rickover's program and everybody fails out. Oh. <laughs> so I didn't feel so good.
1: So that's dinner conversation.
0: So um, I go to nuclear power school and Uh, My first class, I was in one of the first classes. Uh, Math was our first class. And so this guy, Dr. Black, got up there and he said, we're going to review mathematics. So he said 200 and something and 400 and something plus 400 and something is 700 and something. He said, that's addition. You got that? Yep. Then he did a subtraction problem. Then he did a multiplication problem. Then he did a division problem. His review of mathematics was one problem of each. And then he got up into decimals and fractions. And at the end of the class, we were already up into algebra solving one unknown. 2A equals 12, what's A? So we go to lunch that day, and we're talking at lunch, and not a one of us wanted to go back to his, new, his uh, math class tomorrow. So anyway, make a long story short. Within a week or two, we were in calculus. We spent the the rest of the three months, uh, first three months in in math and calculus. So it comes nuclear power school comes very quickly. Um, there was a very high dropout, extremely high dropout rate in in my days. Um, they have uh, they they're doing better at screening people um they uh, they don't have the dropout percentage of dropout rate we had but in 1964 it was very high
1: Why was that and why is it are people just not prepared for it or they don't understand it or they're just flat not going to work that hard or uh, a combination of all of, all of it? yeah
0: yeah sort of all the above are uh, even though we were sort of, we were screened based upon our scholastic record in high school. And a lot of it had to do with the, uh, had to do with the, uh, mathematics. And, uh, because the math comes, the math comes very fast in nuclear power school and math is used in everything. Um, uh, and I guess I was fortunate because my dad got me into math when i was real early and my mom got me into reading and i don't rem- remember not reading that's how young my mom got me into reading so math and math and reading has carried me over all these years
1: oh i'm like you i was reading at three years old nobody told me i couldn't literally and i've read all of my life i'll read anything i'll read the back of a cereal box and i don't eat cereal but reading is so so important and i wanted to ask you the Hunt for Rod October. We talked about this a bit in in our pre interview, and I love the movie. I can't stand Alec Baldwin. I'll be honest with you; I think he's just a horrible human being. But I really fell in love with the movie the first time I watched it. And you had you have a couple stories about that movie.
0: Well, interesting. I was uh, still in the Navy when it uh, came around, and there was a guy by the name of Dr. Jim Auer who was working for Cap Weinberger, who was Secretary of Defense at the time. So I was in San Diego and Jim called me up and said, have you read the book? I said, what book? He said, Hunt for the Red October. He said, I've never heard of it. So he said, I'll send it to you. So he sent it to me. First night, I read a few pages. Second night, I read it all the way through. So I called him up and I said, Jim, how did he write this book? And Jim said, that's what Cap and I want to know from you. (laughs) So I I set out to try to find out how he wrote the book. Come to find out that he was an insurance salesman in Calvert County, Maryland. And at the time, they were building the Calvert Cliffs nuclear power plants there. And there was a lot of Navy people involved. Well, his target market for selling insurance was a new couple with a baby. Because... The moms, they wanted insurance. And so he would target them and he would sit down with a couple and he would sell them insurance. And he started hearing these stories about submarines. And one of the things he heard was how submariners get together and talk alone when they've been off on a patrol in this high stress situation and uh, and all that. So um, what he did was he turned his... Two car garage into a place that they could come after they got off shift work and they could come and sit in, relax, and talk to each other. Um, He heard us, he heard him talk about buying these big old refrigerators and cut a hole in the side and put a beer cake in there so it keeps it cold. And he did the same thing. So he started taking notes. So it was the notes that he, he took listening to those guys talk for a few years that prompted him to write the book for the Hunt for the red October now when I read the book there were some things in there that he didn't exactly say but he implied and I thought to myself when I was reading and I thought you know if I was to write this they'd probably probably call me back on active duty and court-martial me <laughs> but um that was the, that was the book I the Hunt for the red... <laughs> that, that was the genesis of the book for the Hunt for the red October
1: and, you know, the Navy, I did a, another little bit of research. The Navy um, played a crucial role in enhancing the credibility of the storyline because the movie revolves around a Soviet submarine, obviously, that was defecting to the United States. And the Navy's involvement ensured that the military and strategic elements were portrayed with accuracy. It really was a great movie. In fact, I, I watched it again last week because I knew I was going to be talking with you. And, and you know, I was, it's a fascinating movie. It's a fascinating story.
0: Well, in the book, or excuse me, in the movie, you saw that they transferred uh, people from the, U- from the USS Dallas to Red October, and they used the submarine rescue vehicle Mystic in the right. movie. Right. So in real life, three days before I retired, uh, I was on the Board of Inspection and Survey, and uh, I was a member of the Board of Inspection and Survey, and one of my specialties is deep submerged, manned deep submergence vehicles. So, three days before I retired, I rode the Mystic that was used in the movie on the other side of San Clemente Island uh, in Southern California. We went down to 3,000 feet and made it up with a, a hatch down there. And uh, the crew opened the center hatch of the Mystic and I certified her for test depth operations. Three days later, I walked out of the Navy. And that left only a handful of people who could certify uh, manned deep submergence vehicles for, um, uh, for test depth operations.
1: And when you watched the movie, what did you, uh, how did you feel when you got to that part where they were, you know, opening up in there?
0: Well, since I'd already, uh, since I'd done that before, uh, I was, I was impressed that they, uh, uh, that they did that. I I mean, I know where they shot the movie. I know where the, shot those scenes uh in the movie and i know some of the people who were involved in it but uh it was it was a hundred percent
1: realistic it was a great movie um, I have, and i know i shared this with you before i had to make myself watch it again because i really can't take alec baldwin There's just so icky you know he's just an icky guy but he's a heck of a good actor if you can stand to watch him listen uh we are we're about running out of time that's just my personal opinion but is there anything else that you want to share with our audience about the battery and maybe what challenges might arise from the implement implementation of this battery or this this type of energy
0: the challenges are political and I know deep in my heart after being around the world and looking at people that need food and they need clean water, that this offers the ability for the United States to share with the world, uh, a the perfect power source to eliminate hunger and thirst around the world. And the only people that are stopping that are heads of, of countries, uh, starting with our own, right, if. if if we have if we have a group of responsible people back in Washington wake up, they can take advantage of what we have to offer, and they can and they can make the U.S. the world leader again in going out and saving the world like we did in World War One and World War Two, except in a different different way. Uh, we can go out and save the world by providing the billion people out there that need food to eat and they need clean water to drink. We can provide that for them.
1: Richard, is this something that if, if our country is not going to be interested in, is this something that you can take to other nations? Because they need help. Listen, I'll, I'll see videos where, you know, people are trudging up and down mountains with a basket on their head or a container on their head to bring home water every day. That should not be happening. It just should not. We are an enlightened world. What the heck?
0: I agree wholeheartedly with you. And um, we actually uh, have received, uh, I've rec- see, because of my time at the International Atomic Energy Agency, I'm pretty well known around the world. So I'm receiving questions from other countries. Um, I can't share with them. It's illegal for me to, me to share with them uh, knowledge about American nuclear technology.
1: Okay. But
0: I can share with them what it will do. And I'm currently in the process of doing that. And I'm working with another person that I've worked with for years um, uh, since I came up to Idaho, uh, trying to help people find uh, solutions under the nexus of agriculture, water and energy. And uh, he has uh, has now got us involved in uh, more than 124 countries.
1: Excellent. Richard, I really appreciate you joining me here today. And if you would stay in touch with me and keep me posted on what's going on and how I can get information out to my audience, because this is something that impacts the entire world. It's not just America. It's not just, you know, a a few little small countries. It's it's nationwide. It's worldwide. I think it's important information to have.
0: I I couldn't agree with you more, and I really thank you for having me on your show. Um, you're doing a great service to uh, uh, people that are trying to make a difference in the world, and you're making help you're helping make that difference for the people of the world. I
1: mm-hmm.
0: applaud you for what you do. Thank you.
1: I appreciate you saying that. Listen, before I let you go, where can people find you? Because I know that people are going to hear this now and in the future because I, I post these things over and over again. It doesn't just, you know, we talk and there it lands. I make sure that it gets, you know, disseminated out there, but where can people find you? Is there a phone number? Is there a website? The, the, uh, there, they there, there,
0: you? There, there are two ways. The, front, the easiest way because they'll get a lot of information very quickly is we've now, we've been very quiet about what we've been doing until just recently. We now have a website. And I would urge people to go to the website and look at the video and then look at the website from time to time because we're going to use that as a primary source of education. And the website is www.micronuclear, just like it sounds, M-I-C-R-O, nuclear, N-U-C-L-E-A-R, tech, tec dot micronucleartech.com. Um, The video that we have on there was produced by a great outfit in L.A., um, and uh, they like what we're doing to try to help the world, so they put a lot of work in that. Our intention was to educate people a little bit about energy, uh, especially nuclear energy, and weave in there the molten salt nuclear battery. So that's the first start of our educating the world about what's available, and uh, we will be doing a lot more of that.
1: Well, I am pleased to have met you and have you on the show, and I definitely want to stay in touch. So for our audience, as we wrap up today's episode, I kindly ask you for your valuable feedback for me and for Richard. And if you found our insights helpful and enjoyed the show, I would greatly appreciate your support by leaving a review and rating on iTunes. Your feedback is crucial and it helps inspire me to empower more individuals on their path to success so don't forget to hit that subscribe button leave a review and share your partner in success radio with your friends and your colleagues and definitely go look for richard richard again thank you so much it has been fascinating getting to know you and i look forward to staying in touch
0: and i do also and uh, you have a great weekend and i will talk to you later Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.